Father, we ask now that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, our souls come in this place thirsty. And so often we misdiagnose our thirst. We think, God, that what we need is more success or more admiration from other people or maybe more vacations or more entertainment. But God, here and now, we just confess before your face that ultimately what we thirst for is you. God, that as a deer pants for the water, so our souls pant for you. And we pray, God, that as we open up your word, that you might meet our longing with your presence and your goodness. So come, meet us here in your word, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I think my favorite novel of all time is Herman Melville's Moby Dick. I don't know if any of you have read Moby Dick, but uh, it takes some patience to get through Moby Dick. Uh, The first hundred pages are very engrossing, but then you'll go hundreds of pages with the plot advancing zero because he is spending pages and pages describing every minutia of a boat and of a whale and whatnot. But I think probably the most uh, compelling part of the whole book is the first couple paragraphs And in this place, I I just so resonate with it because he talks about this deep longing that the main character in the novel, Ishmael, has for the sea or for the water. And so uh, I want to read this for you. And I, I remember reading these words when I was off living in Albuquerque far away from the ocean and being this poor, you know, young surfer kid who grew up all of my life around the water and coming to this place in my life where I would just feel like I need to get my gills wet, you know, I need, I need water. Anyway, Melville captures this in these opening words. It says this, call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It's a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about my mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, And especially when my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street or methodically knocking people's hats off. Then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. And what's interesting is he expands kind of his own experience of longing for the sea and for the water to all of us. And he says this, if they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. And then he goes on, but look, here come more crowds pacing straight for the water and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange, nothing will content them but the extremist limit of the land, loitering under the shade lee, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is old language, loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as possibly can without falling in. 
And, you know, almost everybody who studies Moby Dick, kind of like literary academics and whatnot, will say that uh, Melville in this moment and with these words is doing something symbolic and metaphorical. And he's using Ishmael's longing for the sea or for the ocean to speak to something that is psychologically, anthropologically true about us as human beings. Namely, that we, all of us, live with a longing for something bigger than ourselves. And in the text that we're looking at today, Jesus is going to utilize similar kind of symbolic language and imagery. He's going to talk about the human thirst and longing for water to describe something that is fundamentally true about your humanity. Namely, that you were made for transcendence. You were made for the divine. You were made for something bigger than yourself. And in the course of this conversation that Jesus engages in with this woman, he takes her and us on a journey to help us discern this thirst for God within our souls. And so I want to invite you just to join with me as we walk through this narrative. Now, the story unfolds in three acts. Each seems like it takes the conversation in a dramatically different direction. In Act 1, he speaks to this woman about living water. In Act 2, he speaks to her about five husbands. And then in Act 3, he, he talks to her about the true place to worship. And it seems to us readers superficially to think that we're talking about three different subjects. But actually, throughout the narrative, Jesus is intent on taking us to one place. And so I want to invite you to join with me as we walk through this story. The story picks up. In John chapter 4, and let's begin in verse 3, it says this, Now Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus, at this point, is on a journey from Jerusalem in the south up to Galilee in the north. And about halfway along that journey, about 70 miles in, as he and his disciples are walking through this hot, dusty desert on foot, they take a stop in a village called Sychar in the land of Samaria. Now, the ancient readers would immediately be cued up that Jesus and his disciples as good Jewish boys are now walking into hostile territory. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans had a long-running feud that went back gener generations and generations, literally hundreds of years. And this, this, this feud was deep and it was hostile and sometimes it would erupt in violence, sometimes murder. And it began hundreds of years ago when the Jews went and uh, destroyed the Samaritan temple. Now, they did this in reaction to the Samaritans who earlier sought to create obstacles for them in building their temple. That was in the book of Ezra. And as uh, returning their favor, the Samaritans then at one point invaded Jerusalem and they cast bones all over the Jewish temple to desecrate it. And so they were trying to one-up one another. You know, have you ever been in kind of like a few, you remember this, like, I don't know, you had a rivalry in high school? 
and you kept one upping each other. And this is what they were doing, and the feud just intensified, and the hostility and the anger grew. And so that's kind of the environment that they walk into. This is hostile territory, but the journey is long, and they are hot, and they are tired. And it says that Jesus stopped by a well as his disciples went off to get some food, and Jesus sat down there, and he rested. And we should just pause and note that here, the eternal word who called all things into being, who took on human flesh and dwelt among us in his true and full humanity is hot and he is tired. The God in whom dwells all life in infinity within God's own self, incarnate within his son because he has taken on true humanity, he now is tired and he's thirsty and he's in need of a drink. And look what happens next. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this is weird for a couple reasons. Uh, this woman is coming to this well, it says, in the middle of the day, and she's alone. And in the ancient world, if you were a woman, number one, you wouldn't go to the well in the middle of the day because that was hot. They would always go in the morning or in the evening, and you would never travel alone. You always went with company for protection and also for community. But here's a woman who's wandering to the well by herself, and the, the attentive reader asks why. Why is she propelled to go to the well in the heat of the day alone? And later on in the story, we find out why. It's because this woman has had five husbands, and the man she's living with right now is not her husband. Now, even in our day, in the 21st century, that sounds a little bit weird. And if you met somebody like that, you'd think, wow, what has been going on in your life that that's your story? And of course, in the ancient world, this was that much more bizarre and strange. And this, of course, was an honor-shame culture. And so this woman would be an object of shame and ridicule. And so she probably didn't want to go to the well at the heat of the day because she didn't want to deal with the shaming looks. You know, Brene Brown, you know, that uh, great uh, psychologist and sociologist, has noted the distinction between guilt and shame. She said that guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. And no doubt for this woman, she just felt like I am a mistake. Now, it's important to point out that the only thing we actually know about this woman is that she had had five husbands and the man she is living with right now is not her husband. What we don't know is the reason why. You know, there's often this assumption that maybe she was promiscuous and she was just this loose woman, but the, the text doesn't actually tell us that. You know, she could have been widowed five times for all we know, and uh, maybe she was divorced because she was married to abusive husbands. Maybe she was infertile and they just felt like, you know, um, I need a fertile wife and you're not good enough for me, and she kept being cast off. You know, we don't really know why she, is, why she has been married five times, but it's, it's, it's important, I think, that we not jump to too many conclusions. 
You know, I, 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 was, uh, I heard a, a well-known preacher uh, describe this woman as, quote, a worldly, sensually-minded harlot from Samaria. But, you know, that may say more about the preacher than it does about the woman. All we know, again, and, and actually in the ancient world, it is far more likely that she was a victim than that she was actually the person who was the perpetrator. But of course, there, 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 there could have been many, many reasons why she was married five times and the, the man who she was living with right now was not her husband. But regardless of the different reasons, if it were the case that her, she was a widowed five times, then her culture would have viewed her as being accursed. And there's probably a good reason why that sixth man didn't want to marry her. And of course, if she was infertile, and the sixth man also said, I'm not going to marry a woman who can't bear me children, but I'll use her and I'll live with her. And of course, she in this ancient world was dependent upon the care and the provision of the protection of this man. But the point is, is that this woman had something deep going down in her life. There was a deep wound. There was shame. And she didn't want to be seen. Maybe it was uncomfortable if she went to the well with other women. Maybe it just got awkward. Maybe they didn't talk to her. Maybe she just didn't want to be seen because sometimes being seen is painful, even if it's also the very thing we want more than anything else in the world. But of course, the idea of not being seen doesn't work out for this woman because as she approaches the well, she looks off in the distance and she sees that there's a man leaning against the well. And as she gets a little bit closer, she starts to realize this is a Jewish man and this is not going to go well. And you just imagine her just thinking, I'm just going to go, and I'm going to get my water, and I'm going to just not make eye contact, and then I'm going to quickly get away. But as she approaches the well, to her shock and surprise, this Jewish man looks her in the eye and says, can you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She knows that everything that is happening in this moment is going against all cultural norms. This is a man, as the story unfolds, he's a rabbi. And in the ancient world, Jewish rabbis didn't speak to women in public. And certainly, a Jewish man who was alone, no self-respecting Jewish man who's alone, would stand by a well and engage with another woman who also is alone. You know, wells were places in the Old Testament, if you remember, where a lot of people met their spouses. And so you never know what would happen, you know, if you had a rabbi talking to a woman alone at a well. And yet here he speaks to her. And of course, he doesn't just cross the gender barrier, he is crossing a racial barrier. You know, she's a Samaritan. And as she points out, you know, Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. And that's an understatement to say the least. Jews and Samaritans were utterly hostile to one another. 
You know, it said in the Mishnah that to eat the bread of a Samaritan would be the same thing for a Jew to eat the, the flesh of a swine. And here Jesus says, can I have a drink? And do you see what he's asking? Can I touch the vessel you're touching? Can I put my lips on the vessel that your lips have touched? Can we share germs? Can we, can we, can we, do you see what he, he he's, he's saying something to her. He's saying, look, you are not an untouchable. And though you might feel shame, and though people around you want to avoid you, I don't want to avoid you. I see you, and I will speak to you. And so Jesus here is not just asking a question. He is making a statement. He is saying, look, I view you as somebody who is worthy to speak to, somebody who is worthy to drink with, somebody who is worthy of belonging. I wonder if any of you might need to hear that word from Jesus this morning. That Jesus doesn't view any of us as, as people who are too dirty or too sinful or too vile or too broken or too wounded or too shameful to touch and to come near. This is the God who has chosen to come near his people. Well, he presses it further, and look what he says next. Jesus said to her, look, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so, you know, she, she comes and Jesus says, give me a drink. And she's like, she doesn't say yes, and she doesn't say no. She's just stunned. And while he's probably still waiting, I mean, he's still thirsty and waiting for a drink, he's like, look, you know, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you living water. And she's confused, and she said to him, well, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And she's pointing out the fact that this well that they are meeting at has some sacred significance. This is Jacob's well. And she is in the land where the patriarchs had died. And so this place carries sacred significance and is charged with memory. And she's like, are you greater than Jacob who gave us this special sacred well? And Jesus said to her, well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And all of a sudden, it starts to become clear to her and us that Jesus is talking about something more than just physical water, right? Jesus is talking about living water that he says will well up into eternal life. You know, as you get a little bit further into John's gospel, Jesus will make the statement, this is eternal life. What is it? What does it mean to experience eternal life? It doesn't just mean to have length of life. It's not simply about a quantity of life. Eternal life is about a quality of life. 
And Jesus says, this is the quality of life I am inviting you into. This is eternal life, to know the only true God and his son whom he has sent into the world. In other words, what does it mean to have eternal life? It means to be in a relationship with God as your father and to actually experience and share in the eternal communal love and life of the triune God. And here Jesus says, this is what I am offering you. You know, I don't know if uh, any of you remember from Psych 101, Mavslow's uh, Hierarchy of Human Needs. I'm looking back at Rick, psychologist in the back. We have some therapists in the house studying over at Fuller School of, yeah, Rosemead, you know, do we have a Rosemead student here? No, we have Fuller. But, you know, in uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, at the very top is self-actualization, you know, finding meaning and purpose and fulfilling your purpose. And the second level is, is knowing esteem and love from family and friends. A third level is belonging. And then down at the very bottom of, of his hierarchy of needs are the base needs. And the way it works is unless the former needs are met, the latter needs will never be met. And so... Above all else, you need to have the base needs met. And at the very base level, before all else, what you need as a human being is you need food and you need drink and you need sleep. I mean, this is the base, base need for your humanity. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a baser need. There is a more fundamental need that you have as a human being. You need God. You need God like your body needs water. There is this deep-seated need, a fundamental need in every human person for an experience and a relationship with the true and the living God. Blaise Pascal, who uh, was a brilliant mathematician and physicist and philosopher, uh, he, he put it like this, you know, th this was a man of science, you know? And, and he, he knew that there, there were aspects of, of reality that you could only know if you stuck it under a microscope and you studied it. And he believed in the scientific method. He helped develop the scientific method. Blaise Pascal, was, was a, he, he knew that there were aspects of reality you could only know through science. But he also understood that there was an aspect of our humanity that was not explicable by putting it under a microscope and studied it and that would not be explained simply by chemical processes in the brain. And he put it like this. He said, there is this deep craving, a thirst, and a hunger in our humanity. And he says this, what else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim? But that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, though none can help, since this infinite, this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. And he's saying, look, we tr we, we've got a restlessness deep in our souls. We've got a longing deep within us to be infinitely loved. We have a longing to, be, to belong. We have a longing for meaning and satisfaction 
and deep-seated relational fulfillment. And what he's saying is that ultimately, if you go below all of our thirst for like, like you will find this deep need for all of that to ultimately and finally and eternally be met in the true and living God. And what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, this woman who has a past, this woman who is a Samaritan, this woman who's confused, this woman who has been rejected by her society and her community, Jesus tells her and us, he says, look, I am offering relationship with God to you. And look at her response. I love this image, by the way. It's a beautiful portrait of Jesus now offering this living water to this woman. And he says to her, or the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She says, I need this in my soul. And I just wonder how many of you walked in today and you just feel like, you know, I've got a wound that needs an eternal, infinite kind of healing that only God can heal. And I, I've got a darkness, and I've got fears, and I've got loneliness, and I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got stuff in my life, and I need something more. I've tried human stuff around me, and I need something more. And this is where this woman was at. She's like, I need something. Give me this water. You know, she still doesn't understand fully what's going on here. She senses that Jesus has something, that this person who she's talking to is no ordinary human. This is no ordinary. There's something you, and she's like, give me this water that I can drink. And then Jesus does the oddest thing. He radically changes the conversation. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, up to this point, this woman is shocked. You know, Jesus has crossed the gender barrier and he's crossed the racial barrier. And no doubt, she's just thinking, this is the most open-minded man I have ever met in my entire life. And I, 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 you know, I, he's got something for me. And boy, am I glad he doesn't know about my past. I mean, he already, he's crossed the, the racial boundary and the gender boundary. It's a good thing. He, I hope he doesn't find out about my past. And then he says, now go call your husband. And she just thinks, uh-oh. You know? She's like, okay, so we're going there, huh? And the woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. You know, Jesus in this moment is not changing the conversation. He is taking the conversation with this woman exactly where it needs to go if she's going to know the life of God. It's as if Jesus is saying in this moment, look, you want living water? You want to stop trying to quench your thirst with things that will never satisfy? You want this eternal life? Then it starts with you being seen. 
It starts with the truth, the naked truth of your original wound and your original beauty and every good and bad thing about you. It starts with the truth about wounds that you have inflicted and the wounds that have been inflicted by others. You know, there's this principle in physics that water finds its lowest point. Well, living water finds your lowest point. Nadia Bowles Weber puts it like this. She says, the living water offered by Jesus Christ finds your lowest point. It flows to your original wound. The thing you spend so much energy trying to heal through all the insufficient ways, relationships, religion, success, more graduate degrees, more therapy, working out, trying to get your parents to love you. There are a million ways we try to use substitutes for God and make sure our damage is not seen. But it's fascinating in the text because in this moment, this woman feels seen. Do you notice her response to Jesus' words? She said, sir, uh, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know, we, we laugh at that like she's being coy. But she's not. For her, the prophet could speak truth because the prophet had been given insight from God about what God knew. And in this moment, she discovers what God knew. And no doubt she wondered, does God see? Does God know what I've been going through? Does he see all of the heartache and all of the brokenness? Does God see? And in this moment, in this prophetic word spoken to her, all of a sudden it occurs to her, God sees and God knows. God sees everything that's going on in your life. He knows what you're going through. He sees you. He sees you all the way down, and he loves you. You know, it's fascinating after this woman hears this, the very first thing she does, you know, she engages in a little dialogue with him. We'll get to that about what true worship is. And then that dialogue ends with Jesus saying, I, who, I, I am the one you've been seeking. And in that moment, she drops the jar and it says this, uh, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman. This is down in verse 27. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? <laughs> By the way, just note, I just love the disciples. They come back and he's doing something totally out of ordinary and like something you shouldn't be doing, but they're too afraid to ask him about it. This happens all the time with them. They're just seeing Jesus do all these countercultural, counterintuitive things that go against the grain of what's socially acceptable. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. For her, this was good news. For her, this was revelation. She felt known all of a sudden. She felt seen. God sees me all the way down and he loves me still. Tim Keller said, to be loved but not known is superficial and unsatisfying. Isn't it? To be known but rejected is our greatest nightmare. But to be known and loved is what we most long for. 
And what Jesus is revealing to this woman right here is you have a thirst for healing of this deep wound. You have a thirst for infinite love and belonging. And I see you and I know you. And I am here to meet that deep need. I am here to heal that deep wound. And friends, this is how you are seen by God. That whatever the lowest point of you is, whatever the deepest wound, your vilest sin, the damaged thing in you, the living water of Christ's compassion will find it. And it can find it. And it has found it. And this love can quench our spiritual thirst in a way that no amount of success or admiration or romantic love or social justice work ever could do. Now, we're going to move on and kind of land the plane. But it's interesting, you know, um, when you go back into the text, after they have this conversation about her five husbands, and she's like, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She seems to try to change the conversation. I don't know if you've ever had somebody call something out in your life, and you're like, oh, let's, let's not talk, you know, we don't talk about Bruno, you know? <laughs> like, we're not going to go there. We're not talking about that one. And so you just changed the subject. And I used to think that this is what this woman was doing in this moment. But I don't think that that's what this woman was doing. I don't think that she's changing the subject when she starts talking about worship. I think in this conversation, Jesus is taking things to an even deeper level when it comes to how we experience this living water. And look what happens. She says, look, uh, you know, there, there's been this long-standing political religious debate in our community about which is the right mountain to worship on? You know, is it Gerizim here in Samaria or is it Jerusalem down south? And she's like, you know, we have this debate going, which one is it? And look at how Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. By the way, Jesus right now is engaging in one of the most earth-shattering theological principles and discussions in the history of salvation. And note well who is the recipient and his conversation partner. It is not Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. It is the woman of Samaria who has had five husbands and the one who she's living with right now is not her husband. Jesus dignifies her and lifts her by engaging with her in this deep, rich theological conversation. Your intellect and your worth is enough to engage with me at this high level. No other rabbis were saying that in the first century walking up to women and doing that. This is the king who came in not to dehumanize women, but to lift their status. And everywhere the gospel has gone, it has lifted the status of women in societies that are patriarchal and misogynistic where women have been dehumanized. This is what the gospel has done. This is what Jesus was doing. But Jesus says, look, Something new is happening. No longer is worship going to happen in a sacred place like Jerusalem 
or is it limited to a sacred space like the temple, nor is it limited to a sacred class of people like the best Jews or the best Samaritans. Jesus says a brand new movement is happening in the history of humanity. In the history of religion, something brand new is happening. No longer is the living, vibrant, relational love and presence of God going to be limited to a special place and a special space and for special people. No, the walls have broken open. And now Jesus says the day is coming when the true worshipers will have access to the Father through the work of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit wherever they are. And notice he says, the hour is coming. Whenever Jesus refers to the hour in the gospel, he always has in mind the hour of his passion and crucifixion. And I think in short, what Jesus is saying is simply this, that up until now, what you've thought is that in order to have access to this living presence of God, to his love, you, you, you needed to get to the right place. You needed to climb the right holy mountain. And you needed to go through all of the ritual and the ceremony. And you needed to have the right mediator, that priest that would help you get to the gods, you know, and, and, and encounter the presence of the holy. And Jesus is saying, actually, through me, I have come into the world, and the holy has come into humanity. And ultimately, I have entered into humanity so that in the darkest hour of my life on the cross, I myself might suffer in your place. I, on the cross, will cry out, I thirst, so that all of thirsty humanity will never have to thirst anymore. And John's gospel, I don't think this is an accident, but John's gospel, in its description of the, 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 the cross, it says this, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. You know, it's only in this gospel that this detail is given. And I think what John is saying, at least in this detail, is this that it is through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that the living water can be given to all of humanity and that you can have access to God. Are you thirsty? Jesus says, come to me and drink. You say, I've come to Jesus. Well, are you continually coming to him regularly in worship and drinking? He invites us to himself. You know, if, if you're here today and maybe you have never entered into a relationship with God before and you just think like, I, I, I've been listening and I've been kind of looking at things from a distance and I want to enter into this new relationship with God, how do I do that? Where does it begin? It begins where the woman began with opening yourself up and allowing your, your heart and your life to be known. And it begins with this woman. What is the first thing that she did? She left the jar aside and she ran into the city. 
She left aside that empty jar that never was satisfying her in the first place. And this is what we are invited to do. Leave aside those places we've been going to for satisfaction, those false idols and gods we've been looking to for life, and to abandon that and to surrender and to trust and to turn your heart to God and say, God, I need you in my life. And the scripture says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, when it comes to the grace of God, all you need is need. When it comes to being satiated by living water, all you need is thirst. And so Jesus says, come to me and receive this gift. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we confess that we have far too often gone to broken cisterns that don't hold water rather than going to you, the true source of living water. And God, we have inflicted wounds on ourselves. We've been wounded by others. And we need the healing power of your presence and love to break into our lives. And so God, we just pray that here and now, today might be a day of change for people in this room. That today would be a day when we might surrender afresh to you. Where we might once and for all leave behind those empty jars and receive from your hand, your good hand, living water. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.